For all the men who followed Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? We turn now to Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one soothes righteously and no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies and from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace. And there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light. But behold, darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight among those who are vigorous. We are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, 
conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice, and he saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you. And my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth. Nor from the mouth of your offspring nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, beginning at verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your law. We ask you, again, for a measure of your spirit to love it and to keep it, 
illumine our eyes and our minds to understanding the passages before us today. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The fourth chapter of Deuteronomy is an important transition in the book. Deuteronomy chapter 4 bridges all this redemption history that we've been looking at over uh, the first three chapters with the recounting of God's law to a new generation. That law that begins in chapter 5. It shows us what history, all this history means. And so prepares God's people carefully to hear and heed with all due reverence his commandments. So this fourth chapter cements together some major parts of the king's covenant with his people. It cements together the covenant's historical prologue, or recounting of the history, their covenant history, cements that together with the legal stipulations of the covenant, beginning in chapter 5. It's an important chapter for us, too, because as it holds these two major sections of the book together, it also shows us the relationship between God's sovereign grace, by which alone he loves us and sets us apart and calls us, and, on the other hand, the requirements of his law, by which he guides and directs us. Law and grace have a relationship with one another that the church of both testaments, Old Testament and New, the church of both testaments has so often gotten wrong, badly wrong, much to the detriment of our gospel mission among the nations. <coughs> Here's what I mean. Are the nations of the world, round about the people of God, are the nations of the world drawn irresistibly to our Lord Jesus Christ by a libertine church that operates on a misunderstanding of grace? Of course not. No, a church like that, a church that does whatever it jolly well pleases, whatever it wants to do, that church looks too much like them, like the world. What is there to draw them? Well, then are the nations drawn to Christ by legalists with behavioral hang-ups to match the Gentiles? And again, of course not, because that church, with its rules and regulations constantly being churned out, they are just like the world. Anyone, on the one hand, can let it all hang out, and anyone, on the other, can churn out regulations. Pagans do both of those very well without our help. But if we read our own history, our own covenant history, if we understand what our covenantal history signifies, then we're bound from the heart to love him who brought all these wondrous things to pass and consequently bound from the heart to be more reverently disposed toward his law. We'll be more ready to keep it without either adding our own regulations 
or trading away what's really there for a licentious world of our own imaginations. He is our king. He's our king. And for all the misunderstandings that exist over law and grace and their relationship, essentially, it's pretty simple. Jesus said, Jesus our king said, if you love me, keep my commandments. First of all, we love him. We love him. And I mean, think about this. Look at him. Put your fingers in his nail prints. Thrust your hand into his wounded side. Wounded for you, the sinner. Isn't it just natural? Isn't it just instinctive, even, for the redeemed heart to love such a wonderful, gracious God as he is who redeemed us by the blood of a Passover lamb, our Lord Jesus. Another died in our place, and we go free. We're free. Isn't it instinctive, therefore, to want to serve him? Who could begrudge following such a gracious king as though it were a burden, as though he were a taskmaster? The mountain hiker who's trudging uphill mile after mile, hour after hour, hot, sweaty, thirsting, bone-weary. When he's up that mountain or on his way up and he runs across a thundering waterfall, falling into a cold, clear lake, that mountain hiker hardly needs to be told what to do. He drops his pack sheds whatever clothes he dares to shed, and dives in. Just for the sheer beauty and pleasure and refreshment of it all. He dives in. Beloved, the living and true God is that beautiful waterfall to the burdened and the bothered. It is the Lord. And so the scripture says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters. Jesus says, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He promises refreshment. He promises rest for the weary. His commandments are not burdensome. If they were, how could the psalmist, how could every Christian after him sing, oh, how I love thy law. It is my study all the day. It's no burden to exercise your weary limbs swimming in such a cold, clear lake as his commandments offer. They energize. They energize the believer. So the grace behind us and the law before us and how they each explain the other, these are the fundamental issues of life that are too important to entrust to the professional theologian. We've got to understand them. Let's think and speak clearly about them, not for our sakes only, but also for the nations looking on, your unsaved neighbor, for instance. The nations looking on and listening in to the discussion, because, as Paul said, if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? 
We've got to be clear on the grace behind us and the law before us. If we're not clear on what our own history teaches us, if we don't see history as the golden platter on which the Lord our God serves up this mountain of unmerited grace and mercy, if we don't understand it that way, then the law won't affect us, won't direct us as it should. And we'll just end up blending right in with our neighbors who don't understand either of them. Unsaved neighbors who put their puny humanistic gods before our living and true God. Neighbors whose worship is defective, whose word is unreliable, whose Sabbath and work week tend to spill into one another. Beloved, if we love the Lord our God, we shouldn't look anything like the nations around us. He set us apart to be holy, to be distinctive. So the grace behind us and the law before us belong together because God put them together here in the book of Deuteronomy. Our grateful walk in God's law is to be a light to the nations round about us who will say, based on what they see, who will say, in the words of verses 6 to 8, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? So that's what the obedience of the church among the nations was meant to produce. It was meant to produce nations around us that become more like us as we become more conformed to God's law, which is an expression of his character. But is that the story we find in the rest of the Old Testament? Well, what does the subsequent Old Testament history say? Early on in the history, just the generation after Moses, it says in Joshua 24, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. It lasted that long. Adherence to God's law, in view of the gracious things that their eyes had seen, their obedience lasted that long. And those were the early days, the glory days in the land of promise, days of clear remembrance. But of course, if we let it, forgetfulness of our own history sets in. And with it comes a spiritual coldness and a spiritual blindness. And of the three and a half subsequent centuries of governance under the judges after Joshua, it was said in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
No king to enforce God's law in God's new society. No king. And so in such a situation, everyone imagines himself to be a king. Everyone imagines himself to be a law to himself. It's called autonomy. And that's the boiled-down essence of the secular humanism presently canceling 20 centuries of accrued Western culture and learning. No king in Israel. And when in time God sends a king to Israel, after the time of the judges, in the person of Saul, son of Kish the Benjamite, does that solve the problem of lawlessness? Or does even David, the man after God's own heart, does David solve the problem of Israel's lawlessness? Let's see. Think through it. David fathered a dynasty featuring such rascals as Ahaz, Manasseh, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin. And of course, we also remember the good Davidic kings over the years. There were Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Hezekiah, Josiah, and a few others. But the historical trend in Israel through the centuries of her existence, the historical trend isn't upward toward the winning of the nations to Christ, but rather downward. The trend is downward toward exile and extermination. With every passing generation, virtually, Israel looks less and less holy, less and less distinct from the nations. More and more like those nations round about, minus their political and military strength. She grows forgetful of her history, forgetful of her own true husband and king, and therefore cold and finally useless and a laughingstock, a laughingstock to the nation. The Lord sends Israel prophet after prophet to call her back to the good old ways of the law, men who, according to the later lines of Hebrews 11, that famous museum or gallery of faith, men who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. And what's the impact 
upon Israel's national character and mission? What's the impact of centuries of God sending these bold but maligned and mistreated prophets? Did their preaching, did their suffering for the sake of righteousness constitute Israel a more effective kingdom of priests, a more holy nation? What Gentiles, Gentile nations round about were drawn to the brightness of her rising as she learned lovingly to keep God's holy law? Who was drawn? Well, the story of the Old Testament is a story of Gentile nations being drawn to Israel, all right, but they're drawn not to have what she has in terms of a relationship with God. They're drawn near as the rod of God's anger. That's what draws them. The exceptions to the rule among the Gentiles, and there were a few, like Rahab of Jericho, Rahab the Gentile, Ruth the Moabitess, Naaman the Syrian, the Ninevites, the whole city of Nineveh for a brief period, even Nebuchadnezzar himself in his time. There were those exceptions, but those exceptions confessed faith in Israel's God, not for Israel's godly national example, but only for God's own clearly demonstrated power alone. That's what drew them. The poor examples of our fathers in the faith added nothing to the convincing of the Gentiles. But when the unassisted God, God alone, bears his holy arm in the sight of the nations, those nations are convinced. Here's the bottom line. Despite the high and holy calling we see here in Deuteronomy 4, throughout her subsequent history, Israel did not love and obey her own king and savior. Nations did not, therefore, come to her light, nor kings to the brightness of her rising. Isaiah sums up Israel's yet unfinished history in the memorable words of his 59th chapter. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. In the light of Deuteronomy 4, what we have in the rest of the Old Testament is mission failure. Mission failure. Israel botches the job of simple faithful obedience to the Lord. But does Israel's disobedience in the sight of the nations thwart his saving purposes for those nations? After 14 and a half verses describing Israel's failure to be a light to the nations, in this 59th chapter of Isaiah we read, beginning in verse 15. Now the Lord saw 
and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. He saw, he was astonished. So what did he do? Then his own arm brought salvation to him. And his righteousness upheld him. And he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands. He will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the Spirit of the Lord drives, and a Redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob declares the Lord. In terms, then, of this fourth chapter of Deuteronomy, Israel, in fact, failed to love and so serve the Lord our God. She failed to be the light of the world. But it's not as though the word of God had failed. What we could not do, or what, rather, we would not do, the Lord himself accomplished on our behalf. His own outstretched arm accomplished our salvation. And beloved, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. That in the fullness of time, God sent his own son, a kinsman redeemer, to purchase elect sinners out of our slavery to sin and corruption. He kept the law we didn't keep, wouldn't keep. What a story this is. And the deeper you dig into it, the more marvelous it seems. Jesus Christ, beloved son and heir of the Father, King of Israel, friend of sinners, he pays upon the cross the full ransom price for the life of every helpless sinner the Father gave him before the world was. It's not to an obedient church, after all, but to an obedient Savior and substitute, an obedient Son and Redeemer that the nations must be drawn. To him, to him who accomplished these things that we could not do. Moses said to the nation assembled there on the plains of Moab, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform in order that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. But with their subsequent response to this sacred charge, a response lived out in the sight of the nations round about, the Lord was not well pleased. Fast forward now, in your minds, fast forward through 14 dismal centuries 
of compromise and failure. The Old Testament. And we stand now not upon the plains of Moab where Moses was there in the book of Deuteronomy. We stand not upon the plains of Moab, but on a high mountain miles to the north of there, a high mountain where three young men behold the unmasked glory of the word made flesh. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. While the eldest of those three men starts spouting off about building a tent for you and a tent for Moses and a tent for Elijah, at that moment a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Amen. Listen to him. Inasmuch as our love and our faith grows cold and fails, our deeds also fail. And as go our deeds, so goes our effectiveness as witness bearers to the nations around us. We fail. And seeing that there was no man, astonished that there was no one to intercede, his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. Hallelujah. What a kinsman we have. What a redeemer. What a savior we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Beloved, listen to him. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for sending our Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you for his faithfulness in every particular to the mission that you gave him. Thank you that he came with a mighty rushing wind, as it were, as a redeemer, the redeemer to Zion. Thank you that in him we can trust with full security because he has accomplished all the words of this law. Grant your blessing, we pray, upon us as we take these things and ruminate on them, meditate on them, and as we bring them upon our minds and our hearts into our work of this coming week. We humbly ask for the glory of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.